Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for August 5th, 2020. Thanks everybody for checking out the show, uh, and tuning in, I guess. I don't know if you can say tuning in really on a podcast, but whatever. Uh, thanks for listening, uh, and uh, let me put up front the... Uh, usual reminder if you uh, enjoyed this podcast and you haven't checked out my newsletter please go to fx.substack.com to check it out and uh, look at the full range of content that's available to you if you sign up for the free email list or better yet subscribe Uh, I would also urge anybody listening to check out a new Substack project that I'm involved in, which is called Discontents Newsletter, Uh, discontents.substack.com. That includes myself and a bunch of other, uh, you know, really great uh, kind of left ish, uh, I guess. I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I think we're all uh, on the left of the spectrum uh, politically. Uh, not everybody covers politics, but it's a group of, of Substack writers and podcasters uh, who are, you know, more or less um, aligned with one another. And we've tried to, we're trying to create a sort of uh, collective newsletter project community uh, within Substack to kind of uh, support new writers to support our own work, uh, kind of share it more widely. Uh, so it's, a again, it's discontents.substack.com. It's a weekly newsletter, uh, that goes out every Monday, uh, or at least it has for two weeks now. <laughs> Who knows what the future may bring? Um, it's absolutely free. All you have to do is sign up. There's no, uh, no financial transaction involved. Um, uh, and basically, you can aim, if you go to the, the website, you can see all the, the folks who are involved. Um, you go and, and, you know, we get the, the weekly newsletter that talks about what we've all been doing uh, over the past week. So people share, you know, I wrote this piece, I did this podcast, I did this, I did that uh, every week. And so you get a little update on what everybody's working on and you can, you know, you get exposed uh, to the work of other people that you maybe haven't uh, been following. You know, if you're in in the Substack kind of uh, universe, I guess, you may be uh, already subscribed to my newsletter or to, to one of the other uh, newsletters that are involved in the project. But this is a way to sort of, uh, you know, let you see uh, some work that other people are doing that we all think you might be interested in if you're uh, interested in what any one of us is doing. We think, you know, more broadly, there's some uh, other good stuff out there that that you ought to be aware of. Uh, so that's the project. Again, it's discontents.substack.com. I would uh, urge you to check it out. Uh, today, uh, I am being joined by John Carl Baker. Uh, John is a senior program officer at the Plowshares Fund. Uh, Plowshares is an organization that works, uh, it's in DC, it's sort of a think tank slash advocacy group uh, for uh, nuclear arms reduction, uh, arms control. Uh, 
John is, as I said, a senior program officer there. He works primarily on uh, North Korean-related projects, um, but he's written pretty broadly on, you know, both kind of uh, in the arms control range and and more broadly on kind of uh, left-wing foreign policy topics uh, all over the place. You may have seen his writing at the New Republic, uh, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Jacobin, uh, the National Interest. He's he's uh, Defense One. He's got a lot of a uh, lot of bylines out there. He's been on the show before uh, to talk about North Korea. Uh, if you go back in the podcast archives, you will see his previous appearance. Uh, but he's joining me today to talk about something a little more in general, uh, not specifically related to North Korea. We're going to talk about the push, uh, the bizarre, in my view, push uh, to modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And there's a similar push happening uh, in Russia. So it's not just here in the United States, although the Trump administration has put a lot of emphasis on this. Uh, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. I'll see if it makes any sense to John. Um, I don't know if it does. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the future of arms control agreements uh, with the Trump administration having scrapped a number of them and looking to maybe scrap uh, the new start uh, arrangement with Russia. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, a lot depends on what happens in November in terms of what happens with New Start. But we'll talk about that. We'll get into what a Biden administration might do in this area. We'll talk about, um, you know, those kinds of issues. We'll finish with a uh, a discussion of uh, the no first use position, which is a, a, a position that some countries have adopted, which basically is a pledge not to be the first country to use nuclear weapons in a conflict. Uh, the United States has not adopted that position, so I'll talk to John about that, uh, and again the politics around that, and, and um, you know what he what his thoughts are uh, about no first use. Uh, so I'm going to get him on the Skype in a moment. Uh, let me say here also, as I usually do uh, in these programs, I hope that you are all doing well, uh, all things considered, um, and. Uh, uh, thoughts and and hopes and and uh, condolences certainly go out to I don't know if anybody here is listening uh, from Lebanon or has any family or relatives uh, friends anything like that in Lebanon um, but certainly the horrific uh, port explosion that we saw yesterday uh, which has hit a country that that really, didn't have any more capacity to handle uh, any kind of catastrophes or disasters uh, and, you know, has killed, uh, I think at last count, over 100 people. There's still about 100 people, I think, missing. Uh, thousands of people have been injured, some of those maybe severely. Uh, so obviously, uh, you know, try to uh, have a good thought for uh, all of you or all of those folks and, and any of you who have connections uh, to Lebanon and were affected by that that explosion in any way. Um, so with that, uh, now let me uh, get John on the line and we'll start the interview. All right, as promised, I'm being joined by John Carl Baker from the Plowshares Fund, uh, who's going to Talk to us about uh, nuclear modernization or nuclear weapons, I guess, modernization. We're not talking about the 
civilian kind. Uh, John, thank you for being here. Uh, and uh, thank you for helping me at least to understand a topic that I feel like I should probably understand better than I do. Sure. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So I, I feel like we have to, I want to do this kind of very open-endedly, but there's a, there's a push happening in DC and it's not just in the U S I said this in the introduction. There's also a, a, an effort happening in Russia uh, to modernize uh, the, uh, our nuclear arsenal. Um, what, what does that mean uh, in sort of the broadest terms uh, and what, you know, what are, what's sort of been uh, happening on that front kind of policy wise so far? Well, at base, it means uh, rehabilitating, replacing, uh, updating everything in our nuclear arsenal, uh, from bombers to ICBMs uh, to the command and control infrastructure, everything. Um, and the, the rationale behind it is that these systems are old. Uh, in some cases, they are decades old, although they are continually refurbished in a lot of ways. But the base systems are aging. And uh, other competitor states are updating their arsenals. So the argument goes that we have to update ours to maintain a strong deterrent. The thinking is that if there are questions about our capabilities, about whether we could respond to a nuclear attack, uh, deterrence won't be as strong. And so other states may be willing to test uh, our abilities and our capabilities, and this risks a conflict. So the rationale is that they're old, and because they're old, there are questions about whether they'll work, and that causes a hole in deterrence that has to be filled. And apart from the philosophical argument, right, there's also this push to update it from industry as you well know, the uh, war industry has oodles of lobbyists in Washington. They have tons of money. And they are, of course, the ones who are going to get the contracts to update things like the new ICBM. And so for them, this isn't just a matter of national security. It's a matter of profit. So they are huge backers of the modernization push, too. So when you, I mean, when you talk about the base systems and, and like, you know, at, at its core, I mean, this is about like all aspects of the program. Like what, what are some of the systems that, um, you know, have already been talked about and, and you know, that, that um, maybe are, uh, you know, I think in some cases are already, we're already seeing, you know, money allocated uh, to update these things. What are, what are some of the things that are already going on? Well, I mean, what's happening right now in government is that they're really trying to rush the contracts so that this stuff is uh, a fait accompli and the next administration can't do as much to impact it or, or Congress can't do as much to impact it. So, for instance, the, the real egregious program here is uh, ground-based ICBMs, uh, which are estimated to cost something like $100 billion, probably more, uh, over, the, over the course of their development uh, and deployment. And this is a completely needless system. I mean, we're talking about pouring money into something that just sits there and essentially asks, acts as a giant sponge to absorb another country's warheads. 
but right now they're trying to rush those contracts along and it's a single source contract, which is very controversial. There really isn't any competition toward it. So in all likelihood, that means the price is going to go up, which always happens with defense contracts anyway. Uh, so this is a program that is just ripe for being cut. There's no real rationale for it. Uh, and yet it's being rushed along uh, through Congress, uh, through the administration and through industry to make sure this modernization program uh, becomes a done deal before anyone can try to undercut it. This, this is interesting because, I mean, you, as you say, the ground-based uh, ICBM is, is a system that um, is, is more, I mean, it seems to be more of a uh, kind of dummy target than an actual deterrence system, right? I mean, like uh, the U.S. has so much deterrence capability in terms of strategic bombers, in terms of its submarine-launched uh, nukes, potentially. Uh, like the ICBMs that just are sitting there in you know static positions uh, in silos are more likely to be destroyed in the event of a first attack. And it would be those other systems, the mobile ones, that that provide the actual deterrence. So uh, is the reason, uh, and uh, this kind of gets into the political question, is the reason that there is a big push on to do that particular piece of the modernization because uh, the Trump administration is seen as particularly favorable to it? Uh, like, is there a question about what a, a Biden, how a Biden administration might approach this uh, sort of concept of modernization generally and specifically kind of the, the, the ICBM leg of it? I mean, I think the powers that be recognize that it is the most vulnerable aspect of modernization for the very reasons that you talked about. I mean, ultimately, I mean, if you want to make arguments about deterrence, uh, it's submarines that make the most amount of sense because they're extremely hard to track. Uh, they can basically be out there with weapons, you know, <laughs> Uh, essentially undetectable. They can launch them from extremely far away. I mean, they, they have ICBMs too, right? So it, it, it's, it, the, the, the rationale for the ground-based units uh, just doesn't make a whole lot of a sense. And I think because they are so vulnerable to cuts, forces uh, out there, including industry and the administration, are trying to rush this thing along. I, as far as Biden's response to it, you know, I don't know. I would hope that the Biden administration takes a critical look at aspects of modernization. And I think ground-based ICBMs are, are an easy place to uh, cut the budget for nuclear weapons. We are expected to spend $1.7 trillion over the next 30 years rehabilitating our entire nuclear arsenal. And if you didn't rehab land-based ICBMs, that's at least $100 billion savings right there that could go to programs that actually help people instead of just a bunch of weapons that sit there uh, waiting to get struck by other weapons. Uh, and I would add too that ICBMs are extremely dangerous. They're kept in a state of constant alert. Uh, they, they are the main reason that presidential decision time uh, in a nuclear crisis is so short. Uh, when there's a warning of a potential incoming attack, the president only has a few minutes to make the decision about whether to launch our rep weapons in response. Uh, because if they don't launch them in time, as you said, they would be destroyed. So there's this use them or lose them mentality that grows as a result of ICBMs. So th these are dangerous weapons. They're pointless weapons. Uh, they, they, they constitute a giant sponge out in the American West that is just, you know, there to suck up a bunch of other countries' uh, weapons. 
So there's really no point to uh, modernizing them at all. And that's why there's so much of a focus on it, because I think the powers that be know that they're extremely vulnerable and they know that the arguments for them are not strong. Is there, I mean, you, you kind of, you talk about the, the, the danger of having these weapons um, and the, the sort of hair trigger uh, that it puts on, on the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Um, are there other dangers? I guess, I, my, I guess what I'm asking here is specifically with the, with the ICBMs, um, but also in general, sort of, is there any rationale uh, in a that that makes sense from a like in a positive way that normal people like you or you or I might think of it for updating these weapons like are you know are older weapons is there you know are, is it safer to to kind of modernize them from the perspective of like not having an accident some kind of ca catastrophic accident happen or uh, anything like that is it is there any rationale like that 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 makes sense uh, that calls for doing modernization especially as opposed to just say like getting rid of this stuff like i think for icbms the answer to any risk that they pose is to just get rid of them uh but maybe in in other cases there there is a need to to update them i don't know i mean this is sort of you know one of the questions that i have i i think that's right i mean i think there is a safety question particularly when it comes to command and control infrastructure, because as long as nuclear weapons uh, exist in this country and elsewhere, we're going to want to make sure that we have some kind of infrastructure that's capable of assessing potential launches elsewhere, uh, communicating uh, information about it so that the president and others um, can, can decide what to do. That's something that I think even people like me who are backers of nuclear disarmament period would not cut when it comes to modernization. We have to have a decent command and control infrastructure. Um, there are questions about safety, ultimately. I mean, if there is, I think, a limit point to the kind of rehabilitation you can do with old systems. Uh, but that said, there are other forms of rehabilitation that don't, that haven't happened over the years because of so much focus on the weapons themselves. I mean, the labs are sometimes, uh, they sometimes they don't receive funding for kind of basic services because so much of the money goes to weapons development. And then later on, they kind of go, actually, we're in a moment of crisis. We need money for this. And so suddenly more money gets shoveled to them. So the process by which this is distributed is very uh, uneven. And there's so much focus on the weapons themselves that sometimes even really basic systems related to safety don't get the attention that they deserve. Uh, can can you go back? I mean, this is sort of um, the push to to invest a lot of money and kind of rushing to a to a modernization program seems to have really picked up uh, under the the Trump administration. But this is an issue uh, that goes back further than that, and and the the debate over uh, you know updating, upgrading the the U.S. Uh, arsenal and how much money 
uh, we really need to spend on that and sort of, uh, you know, a resource allocation. Uh, can you talk about, you know, kind of go into a little more detail about how long this has been going on and, and you know, the arguments that, that have been going on in the past and especially uh, around, you know, things like how do we allocate, uh, you know, a budget that even for the Pentagon and the Energy Department uh, on some, on some hypothetical level, at least there's a limit to how much the United States can spend on this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, what the, the, the sort of arguments have been kind of prior to, uh, to this administration, kind of give us the history of it. Sure. The, the main history here that's important really has to do with the Obama administration and the uh, attempts to pass the New START Treaty, which is, of course, now in question, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But that is uh, intimately linked to the amount of money that is spent on modernization. Because when there was a debate about whether or not to ratify New START in Congress, um, the Obama administration basically backed a bunch of funding for arsenal modernization to try to get Republican support for the deal. And in particular, they were trying to get John Kyle on board because he was the Republican whip. Uh, they actually did end up getting some Republican support for uh, New START ratification, but not Kyle, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, even with the addition of, I think it was $85 billion uh, at that time to support Arsenal modernization, um, they, you know, they, uh, they didn't get all of the Republican support for it. People like Kyle and uh, McConnell uh, didn't support the ratification. Um, but the deal passed anyway, and New START was ratified. And right now it's, it's up for extension. In fact, we're facing a very dangerous deadline on it. But it's worth talking about because that puts us in a very weird position right now because the Trump administration is extremely opposed to New START extension. Um, many of the Republicans who backed New START back in the day uh, aren't in office anymore. Uh, the Republican Party has kind of just gone far deeper down the hole of Trumpism. And so that trade-off, the idea that you would back uh, an arms control treaty in exchange for modernizing the arsenal has kind of fallen apart. I mean, if a bunch of Republicans, if the Republican Party as a whole and the president no longer support uh, arms control and they don't support New START, why in the world should the Democrats start shoveling a bunch of money at modernization? Because right now, that's what's being talked about in Congress. I mentioned the ICBM earlier, but there's lots of other programs, right, that are up for modernization, and they all cost money. So that deal that Obama tried to implement, uh, even if it worked temporarily, has really broken down. And so it's kind of unclear what's going to happen in the Democratic Party here, because the Dems, I will say, to their, to their credit, have really been uniform in supporting, uh, unite and united in supporting U.S.-Russia arms control, despite all the issues that the Democrats have with Russia, uh, they have actually been very strong supporters of U.S.-Russia arms control, which is, as you know, falling apart right now. The United States uh, pulled out of the INF Treaty. Trump doesn't want to extend New START. So if Biden uh, gets elected, for instance, he's going to have a couple of days to extend New START. And if he does, the treaty will be extended uh, and we'll have, you know, dodge the bullet for now. But what that means for modernization is a big question because we don't see any indication that the Republicans are really backing arms control at all. And in fact, I mean, Trump filled his administration with people who are just vehemently opposed to arms control, John Bolton being the major figure here. So that deal, New START, 
for modernization has really fallen apart. And it's un unclear, I think, what that means for democratic support for modernization. And I know, I hope, right, that ultimately people in Congress are going to be critical of these programs, in part because there doesn't seem to be any interest across the aisle in nuclear arms control. When we talk about modernization, and this is sort of, I'm formulating this as we're having this conversation, but it seems like um, there is, and we'll, we'll, I, I do want to get into New Start and, and the wreckage of arms control treaties that the Trump administration has left in its wake. Um, but it, it seems to me we, the sort of concept of modernization, there are, it's sort of an umbrella concept, right? On the one hand, you have uh, elements uh, that are more kind of maintenance type imp modernization, uh, you know, kind of making sure that, uh, as you said, the command and control systems are upgraded and uh, are working as, as effectively as they possibly can to hopefully avoid uh, any kind of mistaken launch of nuclear weapons. Um, and, you know, sort of making sure that older systems aren't breaking down and risking uh, some kind of horrific accident, that, that kind of stuff versus, and I know, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I know because I know the Pentagon and I know how this works, there has to be some aspect of it that's about building new toys and spending a lot of money and giving a lot of money to, to arms manufacturers to build new toys. I know uh, in the case of Russia, part of their modernization uh, scheme has been the development of this uh, hypersonic missile that delivers warheads and then is itself a warhead. And it's like very complicated, uh, futuristic sounding system that they've supposedly tested, although perhaps uh, not successfully, it's unclear. Um, what, how much of this uh, push and how much of the, the $1.7 trillion that, that you mentioned earlier, this whopping sum of money, um, uh, you know, it, it, can we break down kind of how much of it is uh, intended to do the sort of basic upgrade and maintenance type stuff versus, um, you know, kind of developing new cool gadgets for people and new ways to, uh, you know, be uh, threatening to kill people. Uh, and what are, if, if any, what are some of the, the kind of uh, new toys that people are talking about? Like, is there an F-35 of the, the nuclear modernization movement, for example? Uh, this is a great question. So I, I would say that when we talk about modernization as it's normally discussed, we are talking about new weapons in the sense that this is an attempt to not just uh, refurbish the older missiles and so forth that are already part of the arsenal, but to actually develop the next generation of nuclear weapons. So this isn't, this is actually separate, right? It's a different thing than the year-to-year -year investments um, in the Department of Energy and in the Pentagon to make sure that our existing nuclear weapons run well, because those are constantly being revisited and made sure uh, that they work properly, right? Uh, this is something about, this is, this is to develop truly new versions of things like ICBMs, things like bombers, things like submarines over the next 30 years. Um, but that said, the Trump administration has attempted to um, also develop not just new versions of, you know, the stuff that was already in the arsenal, but things that are new warheads. 
there's a big debate um, that has been going on and really in some ways uh, our side, the arms control and disarmament side kind of lost this one uh, about the new low yield warhead. This was a uh, warhead that was announced in the Trump administration's nuclear posture review a couple years ago. It was an attempt to put a new warhead on submarines that had a low yield function. The argument for it was that Russia has all these uh, low yield weapons and we need to match them somehow, uh, which by the way, ignores the fact that we already have lots of low yield weapons uh, in our arsenal. They can be delivered through bombers, for instance. Uh, but the Trump administration developed this uh, new low yield warhead and there was a fight about it in Congress. But uh, despite the fact that I believe the House tried to block it, the Senate did it and it ended up in the uh, version of the NDAA last year. And now it's already been deployed. So this is a weapon that was developed as a result of the Trump administration and now is already on submarines, you know, cruising around the world, uh, ready to start nuclear war at a moment's notice. And right now there's, a, there's an additional debate that's happening about another uh, sea launched missile, uh, a new warhead that's gonna be developed. So there are individual new toys that are being developed for these new versions of bombers, missiles, submarines that are coming out of modernization. So it's a, it's, it's a lot of new stuff across the board, really. The low yield debate, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about that because it's, it's sort of tied into the Trump administration's, I think, mania about nuclear weapons. Um, this, is, this is an argument that you can build a, a nuclear device that is not um, large enough to trigger a nuclear war. So it, 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 you could use it, for example, in, as, a, as a retaliation for a conventional attack in theory. So the idea is like you could use it in that way without kind of, you know, causing World War III, basically. Um, is there any logic behind that? I mean, that seems uh, nuts to me, but, uh, you know, is there any logic that, I mean, as you said, the, the arms control community has kind of lost that debate. Um, what is the argument, like, what could possibly be the argument that you could develop a safely usable nuclear weapon? Well, I, I don't think there's much logic behind it because when we talk about nuclear war, with the exception of the US attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we're talking about a realm of speculation. We honestly don't know what would happen in a nuclear war. And you're right, the argument for it is that if, for instance, um, Russia was involved in a conflict with the United States and used one of their lower yield nuclear weapons, uh, we would then respond with a low yield weapon instead of just immediately responding with you know, a, a huge megaton uh, weapon. And the idea is that you would have some degree of stability then, you wouldn't you know, immediately jump to the strategic level as opposed to the tactical level. But this is really a kind of silly argument because nuclear war is nuclear war. Uh, and just because you retaliated with the same you know, level of a smaller nuclear weapon, quote unquote smaller, that doesn't mean that then, for instance, Russia wouldn't respond with a larger weapon and then we wouldn't respond. I mean, it, it's really a kind of laughable argument. And the people who back the low yield warhead, they don't really want to talk about it this way, right? Their argument is that, well, this is a hole in deterrence. It's a gap because we don't have enough of these things and Russia has a lot of them and we have to kind of match them one for one 
in order to make sure that stability is maintained and that deterrence doesn't break down. But when it comes to the reality of how that would function um, in, a, in a battle, because these are really weapons, they are, we they are weapons that are designed to be used and are ready to be used at a moment's notice, um, it is really silly and it's a very dangerous argument because you are truly talking about nuclear war fighting at that, at that point. Um, and I don't think I need to remind everyone about this, but we have a complete nut in the White House who is erratic, he believes all sorts of conspiratorial nonsense. Uh, he makes decisions without any sort of data or information backing them. And in a crisis, this is a weapon he could draw upon. Uh, he, there's, no, there's nothing to stop him, right? He doesn't have to ask Congress. He doesn't have to go to the Supreme Court. He can do it whenever he wants. He has complete unilateral power. And that's a new weapon that is in his hands. Uh, and if Trump gets reelected, for instance, um, it will remain in his hands and potentially he could have more. Speaking of the nut in the White House, you alluded to this uh, earlier. Uh, the Trump administration has left a, a heap of wreckage behind it uh, in the arms control treaty realm. Uh, he's withdrawn from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Uh, he's withdrawn from the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, he has destroyed the Iran nuclear deal, which was at the time, you know, many arms control experts talked about that agreement uh, when it was signed in 2015 as a potential model for managing uh, future states that wanted to develop a nuclear, civilian nuclear program, and how do you, uh, you know, make sure that those programs aren't used for military purposes. Um, and he's, he's rendered that deal not only, you know, kind of uh, moot in terms of, or kind of, you know, he's kind of wrecked it, not just in the specific case of Iran, he's wrecked that model of deal, it seems to me, for any country, because there's no reason any country should believe that, that, uh, an agreement with the United States on that front is enforceable or would be honored by a potential future uh, U.S. government. Um, can you sort of take us through those treaties? I want to kind of build up to uh, New START, which is the big one that's on the table now, but take us through these uh, previous treaties that the, the, the Trump administration has um, done its best to destroy and e talk about what each one kind of entailed and, and uh, what the overall effect is uh, at this point of, of what the administration has done. Well, it's, it's hard to run down the litany of them because there's so many at this point. Uh, the INF Treaty was a, 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 a treaty that eradicated uh, intermediate range uh, weapons between the US and Russia. It was a product of the uh, end of the Cold War period where Reagan and Gorbachev uh, negotiated um, a series of measures to try to prevent nuclear war, and it was in you know existence for several decades. Uh, and it's a treaty where um, Russia was almost certainly in violation of it, and uh, this was something that the Obama administration knew. And then when the Obama-Trump changeover happened, the Trump administration sort of jumped on this violation as an excuse to leave the treaty. And as you can probably understand that doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense because if someone is violating a treaty, why would you simply blow up the treaty instead of using the treaty's mechanisms to try to bring them back into compliance? Because essentially what happens when you leave the treaty and you let it die is you give them 
you know, carte blanche to do whatever they want and deploy all the weapons that were in violation in the first place. Uh, so it, that's one that was an extremely bad development. As you mentioned, the JCPOA, which was a landmark diplomatic deal uh, to, uh, for, for one thing, prevent war with Iran, prevent the possibility of war with Iran, and prevent Iran from developing an, uh, a nuclear weapon. Uh, the administration has been opposed to that from before they were even in office. And I agree with you. I think that the, they have done such damage, not only to that deal itself, uh, which I hope survives, but um, to the very idea that if you negotiate an agreement with some administration, that it will outlast the next administration. It, it raises serious questions for other countries about whether it's even worth it to them, excuse me, to engage in diplomacy with the United States. The other, so the other treaty, right, that they want to leave is the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, another accord uh, between other countries, but particularly like the US and Russia, that allows us to know what is going on uh, on their soil, uh, what's there. It's an attempt to decrease the amount of uncertainty between the two countries because these are uh, the largest owners of nuclear weapons in the United States. Between them, the US and Russia account for more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. That's a treaty that the Trump administration bizarrely wants to do away with. Uh, this is a pattern that we've seen with them. It's an administration that is just vehemently opposed to the very idea of nuclear arms control. And now we're coming to the point where there's a question of whether New START is going to be extended. And if it isn't extended, there will be no restrictions on the US and Russian arsenals for the first time since 1972, which is really unprecedented. We are headed back to a very dangerous period in nuclear relations if the treaty isn't extended. So, right, like the, the Open Skies Treaty gives the, the members, and there's a number of members, but it's, you know, the U.S. and Russia are obviously the two, uh, you know, most militaristic of them, I guess, um, or have the largest nuclear arsenals, at least. Uh, it's a treaty that gives member states the right to conduct reconnaissance flights over uh, other treaty members' territory, which, uh, you know, as you say, is is intended to kind of reduce uncertainty about what everybody else is up to and sort of, you know, keep everybody on an even keel. Uh, this seems, this again, as in the case of the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, uh, is a case where the Trump administration seized on uh, an alleged Russian violation of the treaty to just scrap the whole thing, which, which you know, as, as you said, is, is indicative of a, a, an administration that doesn't want to be in the treaty in the first place. Like you wouldn't right. just scrap the treaty on that basis uh, if you didn't want, if you weren't looking for an exit uh, anyway. Uh, um, so like the, the, the overall kind of, as we, you know, we'll get into new start, the, the overall impression that, that the administration, the Trump administration has built is of a, 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 an administration that ideologically is opposed uh, to arms control. And it's, it was, you know, John Bolton obviously has a track record of this. Um, but it's not, it's clearly not just him because of course he's not there anymore. Uh, and isn't, you know, not even on good terms with, with Donald Trump anymore. Uh, but they're still kind of pushing, you know, open sky, the open skies withdrawal happened, I think after he left. So, I mean, they're still pushing this. Um, new start is kind of the granddaddy of these and it's, it's the, the most recent, 
iteration of an, an arms control process that, as you say, goes all the way back to the 70s to the strategic arms limitation, uh, assault treaties, it go, you know, and then through the, uh, the strategic arms reduction treaty that, that the first President Bush signed with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev right on the kind of cusp of uh, the Soviet Union's collapse. Uh, and then Barack Obama and uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who at the time was the president of Russia, uh, signed New Start uh, to sort of uh, you know build on uh, the first Start Treaty and kind of kind of take it uh, even further. Can you talk about uh, the provisions of New Start first of all, and, and sort of the 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 kind of progression of these sorts of arrangements, uh, and kind of you know explain what it is that. Um, you, you know, what are the, the terms? Why is it, you know, when, when does it expire and, and what, what's sort of uh, about to be lost? Well, first off, uh, New START limits the amount of deployed strategic warheads that the U.S. and, Russian ha and Russia have. And they have a lot. Uh, they each have more than 1,500 deployed. And that's a lot of <laughs> deployed uh, weapons. I, I should say those are the weapons. Uh, there's a number of strategic um, ones that are that particularly fall under um, the New START Treaty, uh, but what would what we would lose, right, is that there would be no restraints on those weapons anymore. So the the treaty was negotiated in the uh, early Obama days. I think it was signed in 2010, and uh, it is up for extension, which means that the the treaty's provisions will be extended for another five years. But there's the limit on this. The treaty uh, limits for extension come up in January of 2021 or, or in February, I think. I can't remember exactly what the, the days are, but it's very, very soon, uh, which means that if there is a new president, they would only have literally days to decide to extend the treaty. I mean, I think it's something like two weeks at most. Um, and if there isn't a new president, in all likelihood, the Trump administration would simply choose to let the treaty die. They would not extend it. Uh, and then New START would not exist anymore. And because this is the last remaining treaty that puts limitations on the US and Russian art, uh, arsenals, it's kind of iconic. And if it's not preserved, we really are going back to an era of arms races. Or we could, because there's nothing to limit the arsenals in the slightest. And it may be that the numbers don't necessarily go up, but if you're developing qualitatively better weapons, you truly are engaging in an arms race. So it's, it's a very dangerous moment. And uh, the outcome of the election could impact whether New START is extended or not, which really means whether US-Russia arms control survives or not. So it's a very scary time. I wanna sort of look at the hypothetical um, of a Biden administration. Let's say he is elected in November. Um, from the perspective of arms control, I mean, you know, uh, two of these ag agreements that we've talked about, the, the JCPOA and New START, were agreements that uh, his, you know, the administration in which he served as vice president negotiated. Uh, it seems like a, a no-brainer to me uh, given the time constraints that he would immediately look to extend New START, assuming that the, the Russians, which they have said they are amenable to doing it, uh, assuming that they remain amenable to doing that. 
Um, do you see a way for the Biden administration to kind of walk some of this stuff back? Like, I, I think um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the U.S. withdrawal from open skies doesn't happen for a few months still. So there, there could be time. He, Trump has announced the withdrawal, but there's a period, there's like a, a one year, I think, period uh, before the, uh, the withdrawal actually happens. Uh, so in theory, that could be reversed. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I, I think Biden will try to uh, rejoin the JCPOA and try to, you know, kind of rebuild that. I don't think there is a going back to that, really. I think the, the damage has already been done. But uh, how much of this could a, a Biden administration undo? And how quickly, how much of it would take, you know, uh, how much could be done right away and how much would sort of take uh, take some effort to kind of undo, uh, particularly if you think about um, the future of New Start. Even if Biden comes in and extends it, that's five years. What what comes next, and is there a way to negotiate something next after the the carnage that we've seen uh, and the precedent that's been set uh, by the Trump administration? I mean, extending New Start is very easy. Uh, if Biden came in, he could do that you know, stroke of a pen, basically. The Russians have made it clear they want to extend. And that's partly what makes Trump's refusal to extend so frustrating because it's an easy win, but he refuses to take it, I think, because the administration is just so opposed to arms control. So that's relatively simple. Rejoining the JCPOA would clearly be a good move, but um, that to me, I would think, could take a little bit more negotiating the relations between the U.S. and Iran have been terrible in the Trump administration. There's been more than a few war scares. So repairing that relationship uh, could be a little bit more involved. But still, the JCPOA was an agreement that came out of the Obama administration, so there's less controversy associated with rejoining it. But for other things, it's going to be very complicated. I think the Biden administration could potentially repair a lot of relations that we have with other countries that relate to nuclear weapons, but it's going to take a lot of time. I, I, what worries me is that the Trump administration has been so regressive on these issues that um, the United States really needs to make an example. It needs to show that it, it's actually dedicated to arms control and disarmament. And frankly, I'm not sure that just extending New START is enough to do that. The U.S. really should take some pretty bold initiatives to make it clear that they don't support nuclear war fighting, that they don't want to modernize the entirety of our nuclear arsenal, that they aren't recommitting to nuclear weapons for another 75 years. And that is going to be very difficult politically because it involves bold choices. It would require commitment at the very top, probably at the level of the presidency to try to make it clear to the rest of the world that the US isn't going to engage in nuclear war fighting. And it's gonna actually recommit, not just the United States itself, but the world to nuclear arms control. Because this is a thing that has global implications. You know, some country without nuclear weapons isn't immune to, to a nuclear war simply because they don't have the warheads. Uh, it, it's a huge danger to the globe and the US as, one of the major nuclear powers has a huge responsibility 
to show its commitment to nuclear arms control. And I think that is going to be a long haul process. It will be difficult, but I do think it's something that a future administration should do. One of the, um, I guess, elephants in the room, I don't know, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but one of the, the components uh, of the debate around arms control that's happened uh, under the Trump administration. And one of the arguments that the administration comes back to over and over again in sort of uh, pulling out of these arms control treaties uh, is the, the issue of China's nuclear arsenal. Uh, there is a conspiracy theory, you can maybe talk in, in more detail about it, um, in, you know, among, in some circles in, in the U.S., uh, that China is like secretly developing thousands of nuclear warheads, uh, you know, in, in caves underground, like literally, I think, uh, that are, you know, haven't been declared, nobody knows about them, but they're there. They're, we just, we're sure they're, they're there. Um, and the administration has, without, I think, you know, kind of overtly embracing the real kind of fringe view of this, it has argued that China's arsenal is dangerous enough uh, that a, some kind of a treaty like, uh, you know, that New START is, is inadequate and shouldn't be extended and we need to renegotiate it with China at the table. Uh, that the intermediate nuclear forces, you know, part of the rationale was not just uh, the Russian violation. It was, oh, China has these weapons and, you know, we have to be free to develop them to counter China. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of kind of fear or at least the use of uh, China to justify a lot of this stuff. Um, how, and of course the Chinese government's position is our nuclear arsenal is a fraction of the size of either the US or Russian arsenals. There's no justification for requiring China to be uh, at the table to negotiate a, a, an arms control treaty, uh, unless you're gonna require all you know, nuclear states to, uh, to be there, if you're gonna bring the UK and France and, and you know, other nuclear states to the table. Um, can you talk a little bit about this issue and, and you know, whether there's any grounding in reality or if it's just kind of a, 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 grasp at, a grasping for straws to kind of justify policies that, that, that uh, the administration wants to, to implement anyway or adopt anyway? Well, I mean, the, 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 the truly conspiratorial claim that China is secretly developing nuclear weapons and hiding them uh, in caves is just crackpot ridiculousness. There is no basis for it. I think I saw an op-ed that talked about this in the Wall Street Journal and was just blown away. Uh, but that's the Wall Street Journal for you, I suppose. <laughs> I, I, the, the, the really absurd thing, right, is the disparity in the arsenal size, which you were just talking about. I mean, the US and Russia each have about 6,000 nuclear warheads, more than 1,500 of them are deployed, like we were just talking about. China has 320 warheads total none of which are deployed. So it's, it's really apples and oranges. It, it's ludicrous to talk about this, uh, about bringing them into the treaty, unless for instance, you're going to give China license to go up to those levels of, 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 an, of an arsenal, which the US and, and Russia have no intention of doing, of course, or the US and Russia 
you know, engaging in a hardcore disarmament process where they got down to China's level. And of course, the US and Russia have no intention of doing that either. So the whole thing is stupid. It's, it's really just a monkey wrench that they're throwing into the works to try to run out the clock on the treaty. I, I think the administration made a decision a while ago that it didn't want to just actively blow up the, this treaty the way it's done with others. They want to just give the impression that they're engaging in some sort of attempt to get a better deal, as they always say. But it's ludicrous. Uh, they're just trying to run out the clock on the treaty. Uh, the administration has made it very clear that they don't support nuclear arms control. And so this is just their way of trying to fake like they're interested in nuclear arms control, when in reality, they just want the treaty to expire so they can do whatever they want. Uh, it, it, and I, I will say, we should talk about China's arsenal. There is a serious conversation to have about the Chinese arsenal. Um, it has slightly increased in recent years. Um, the, China has its own nuclear capabilities that we should be aware of. They're nuclear weapons. I mean, these are things that we should be worried about because they are nuclear weapons. But that said, that doesn't mean that you can just willy-nilly throw them into this pre-existing <laughs> treaty process uh, in which they are clearly qualitatively different than the other members. It's absurd, and it really is a pretty sad attempt uh, to lead people astray and get them not to pay attention to the fact that the administration just doesn't want the treaty extended. I think, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think the, the best uh, kind of evidence of that is that, you know, the Trump administration has made a big deal about uh, wanting China to be at the table and renegotiating this treaty. I think they even like, at one point, uh, you know, they were holding negotiations with Russia and they like put an empty chair at the table uh, to show that China wasn't participating. So I, I can't remember, it was fairly recently, but it was just absurd. Um, their their whole approach to getting China to the table has been to say to the Russians, like, get China to the table. Like, there's no there's no effort to actually engage China uh, directly. It's all like the onus. They they've put the onus on Moscow for some reason. Like Moscow has some kind of control over uh, what the Chinese government does. Um, it's just kind of obviously not a serious effort, it seems to me, uh, to, to, to actually engage with, with the Chinese government. And, and uh, if this is a real concern, like to address it. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the Chinese government, the, the whole time this has been going on has been like, we are not participating, we're not going to be there. This is absurd. And, and still the administration keeps faking like they're going to be involved. And you're right, their, their, whole, their whole message is that Russia has to somehow bring the Chinese along. And the Russians have said, this doesn't make sense. We agree with the Chinese. We, we have no ability to force them to come to the table. Uh, their participation makes no sense right now. So it's really very absurd and ridiculous. And, and it, it's a, I'm tempted to say it's, it's very indicative of what this administration does, which is constantly engage in these kind of bad faith efforts where they claim they're trying to do something miraculous almost. A three-way deal for nuclear arms control between the US, Russia, and China. And believe me, if someone could pull that off, that would be impressive. And in some ways I might even support it, but let's be honest, that is not going to happen. This is ridiculous. And in any case, you could simply, extend, there's no reason that you couldn't just extend the treaty with Russia, right? And then engage in a separate dialogue with China, and they've made no attempt to do that at all. Uh, it, it's really silly, and no one should fall for this, I don't know, faint, I guess. 
And uh, hopefully cooler heads will prevail and ultimately the treaty will be extended. But yes, the attempt to include China in it is, is, is ridiculous. One of the things that I think is worth talking about when we talk about China's nuclear arsenal is uh, Beijing's official policy around nuclear weapons is a no first use policy. Uh, this is something that's been debated uh, in the US, it's been debated um, you know, kind of internationally. Um, can you sort of talk about what a no first use doctrine looks like and uh, whether China's actually, you know, it, it seems like a genuine thing or if it's sort of propaganda uh, and kind of talk, talk about the debate around uh, making a no first use declaration in the United States? Sure. China has had a no first use policy um, essentially as long as it's had a nuclear weapons program. Uh, and the policy is uh, that they will not be the first to use a nuclear weapon in war. That their and their policy is that they engage in minimal or minimum deterrence. They try to keep, that's part of the reason why they have such a small arsenal. They try to keep the amount of weapons necessary in their view to maintain deterrence and nothing more. And it's true, if you truly back deterrence and the idea behind it, a no first use policy should be a no brainer because you're stating to the world, I have no intention to use these weapons except, except in defense of the country if there is an attack beforehand. So it's a very simple notion. It's a way of expressing to the world that China has no intention of starting a nuclear war. And it does seem to be earnest. Uh, they, there's constant speculation in the United States that China's gonna back away from this policy. It never happens. They recently reaffirmed it. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's something that's very foundational to Chinese nuclear doctrine. I don't think we have reason to question it. And honestly, if you're a supporter of deterrence theory, uh, you should probably grapple with the fact that no first use fits within that theory. All you are doing is claiming that you will not use nuclear weapons first. And if your theory, or if your re rebuttal to this, I suppose, is that, well, you have to maintain the threat of use in order for deterrence to be uh, stable and to be maintained, then I think it opens up questions of what deterrence theory really means, right? And whether it truly is a defensive theory. Here in the United States, we do not have a no first use policy. Um, as some have said, we don't have an explicit first use policy. In other words, we don't outright say we will <laughs> use nuclear weapons first uh, in war, but we do reserve that right. Uh, we have reiterated that we don't have a no first use policy. And I think for a lot of the people um, in what's called the nuclear priesthood, the experts, people in the labs, people in government and so forth who work on nuclear weapons, uh, they do not support a no first use policy for the very reason that they think you have to maintain the threat of use, right? You have to reserve the right to use the weapons in order for stability and deterrence to be, to be maintained. Uh, the push for no first use in this country largely comes out of the grassroots uh, we at Plavishares Fund work with a lot of different organizations who support a no first use policy. We support a no first use policy. Um, and it's really a very simple notion. Uh, all it is is that 
you know, all, all it is is the United States saying, we will not use nuclear weapons first in war. We do not reserve that right. And to be honest, when you talk to people about this, people who don't follow nuclear weapons on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, like nuts like me, they're shocked we don't have one already. You know, they're deeply disturbed that the United States reserves the right to use nuclear weapons first in a conflict. And there's overwhelming public support for it. There's been uh, several polls done about this. And repeatedly, uh, you see that something like two thirds of the American people uh, would back a no first use policy. Um, and they do not support the first use of weapons in war. So this is a thing that has public support. It has grassroots support. It does have some support um, in the arms control and expert community, but there is a lot of opposition to it. And uh, you know that isn't just opposition from uh, the right wing, from people in the Trump administration. It's also opposition even within the Democratic Party. And that kind of brings up us, us to the issue of, um, I guess, a Biden administration's potential policies. I think Biden has signaled that he supports uh, establishing what is called deterrence as this, quote, sole purpose of the U.S. arsenal. So firmly stating in U.S. declaratory policy that uh, we only have our arsenal for the purpose of deterrence. And I think that's a worthwhile statement to make. Clearly, it would be an improvement on current U.S. policy. Um, but that actually isn't the same as having a no first use policy, uh, because as I was just saying, there are some people who think you have to reserve the right to strike first to maintain deterrence. And to me, that actually cuts up against the theory and it opens up questions of whether this truly is a kind of peaceful <laughs> defensive use of something. Um, in my book, if you had a sole purpose policy, right, declaratory policy, that would be strengthened by a no first use policy, because not only would you be saying that we only have this arsenal for deterrence, you would be saying we are absolutely not going to use nuclear weapons first in war. We are not going to initiate a nuclear conflict. And I think that would be personally, and personally, I think that would be a, a great way to signal to the world that a future administration isn't the Trump administration, right? That's a great way of showing that they aren't gonna be a part of the nuclear regression we've seen over the last few years, that they're actually going to draw a line in the sand and say like, look, the United States has to return to arms control. We have to begin disarmament procedures we have to try to uh, abide by um, our treaty obligations in the Non-Proliferation Treaty, right? Article six calls on the nuclear armed states to make good faith effort towards disarmament. I think this is a great way of, of, of you know, distinguishing a different administration from the Trump years, which truly were a regression on arms control and disarmament. So I, I, it's a policy that I support. I think a lot of people support it in our community and in public. And, and I'd like to see a future administration implement it. I just the the logic the logic of these weapons is is um so bizarre to me. I mean, if you think about them for any amount of time, like I remember uh you know, Jeremy Corbyn was was lambasted for this uh for saying that he would never use nuclear weapons if he were the prime minister of Britain. Uh, and, you know, for not even in in retaliation for a nuclear attack. The, the, the issue of retaliation, though, I mean, if you think about it for any amount of time and like put any thought into it, uh, is basically saying like, we're going to be dead, but we're going to revenge, we're going to like avenge ourselves by slaughtering millions of other people uh, just because, just as like an angry kind of rage thing. Uh, and it's, it's just, it, it doesn't, they don't make any sense really. Um, you know, they exist, unfortunately, and I guess there, there is a deterrence 
logic to it, but the actual concept of ever using them seems just fundamentally outrageous to me. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it was ridiculous that Corbyn came under such fire for that. I mean, there's a long tradition, particularly in the UK, right, of support for uh, nuclear disarmament and of saying that, yes, uh, using nuclear weapons for pure vengeance uh, is indefensible. I think this was um, E.P. Thompson, uh, e. Thompson's position. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I understand that many people may not agree with that. Uh, people may even think it's a kind of fringe stance. But I think it's a fair one. And I think supporters of nuclear weapons really need to grapple with that. Um, they need to think about the morality and the ethics of the enterprise that they're engaged in. And we do too, as the public, because frequently nuclear weapons are thought of as the domain of experts, uh, the domain of specialists, but their use is going to affect all of us, maybe in different ways. But if there's a nuclear war, we're, we, we're going to be affected in some way. And uh, the effects are not going to be good. So we, I think, have a right to ask our politicians, uh, our experts, people in government, to grapple with that kind of stance and to think about whether vengeance is a proper position when it comes to nuclear weapons, to think about whether simply letting these weapons exist and recommitting to them for uh, another 75 years. We're, we're coming up on the 75th anniversary, right, of the creation of the bomb, or, or we, it just passed, I should, I should say. Uh, and that to me is striking. It, it shows that this is a moment when we ought to be reflecting on the atomic age and whether we're even trying to end it. And I don't have a solution to that, um, but I think that the United States recommitment to nuclear weapons is a sign that it's going in the wrong direction, that we aren't really serious about uh, arms control. We're certainly not serious about disarmament. And that simply means that the world is going to be stuck with these weapons for potentially another 75 years or longer. Uh, and that's a frightening thought because perhaps deterrence has held for 75 years or so, maybe, but I don't think it's going to hold out forever. And even one nuclear attack would be an absolute catastrophe, as we know, right, from the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it's, it seems to me that this is the moment when we should be grappling with these difficult questions. And when people denigrate uh, the views of folks who support disarmament, like Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, uh, they're just trying to shut down a debate that we ought to be having about weapons that are an existential threat to the planet. I want to wrap up with uh, sort of what seems to me to be a worst case uh, scenario uh, uh, with specifically around the Trump administration. Uh, there has been talk, uh, I don't know how serious it is, but there has been talk that uh, Trump is considering the idea of conducting a, a nuclear test, a, a, a new nuclear test, which um, you know, would, would violate, there's a whole nother uh, treaty that we didn't talk about, the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Um, and this is supposedly, you know, meant to be 
like a statement of deterrence or, you know, so, like a message to China uh, or some kind of a statement about, uh, you know, that the U.S. kind of suspects Russia and China have been violating uh, the, the test ban, you know, the test ban obligations. Uh, can you... Uh, you know, with, you know, just briefly, I don't want to, you know, extend this too much longer, but uh, kind of talk about that and, and, you know, whether we could see, actually see the United States conduct a nuclear test and what the, the sort of ramifications uh, of that would be. Sure. Well, I would say first off that, yes, the administration has claimed pretty dubiously, I would add, that China and Russia have been illegally and secretly engaging in uh, tests that violate the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Uh, we've seen absolutely no evidence for that. It's just something that the administration has declared. It's the kind of thing that has been uh, declared before, I would say. Um, but there's no evidence for it. And without any evidence, we have no reason to take it seriously, uh, especially because if they have evidence for it, there's, I mean, the CTBT has a process by which this could be uh, investigated. Um, we could see if there is any evidence for it and potentially there could be some kind of solution uh, that comes out of that process. But the administration isn't trying to do that at all. They're just slinging allegations around. And I think part of the reason they're slinging it around is because they want to do a nuclear test. They want to restart nuclear testing. The idea that doing a nuclear test would somehow get Russia and China to the table it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, conducting a nuclear test would, if anything, encourage other countries to simply follow suit. It would be uh, a huge problem for non-proliferation efforts around the world. And it would be a real relinquishing, I think, of the U.S. responsibility to show that it's a halfway decent actor when it comes uh, for nuclear weapons. I mean, we haven't tested a nuclear weapon since uh, the 1990s. It's been a long time. Uh, there's no reason to test. Uh, we have ways of making sure the arsenal is safe and secure without actually conducting uh, full nuclear tests. So there's no real purpose for it. It would just be purely destructive. And it would probably just be you know, yet another example of how this administration wants to blow up all sorts of good international arms control agreements. So it, it's very disturbing that it's even being floated. Uh, could we see one? Yes, we could. Uh, when the Trump administration got into office, uh, a very good friend of mine, someone we work with at Plowshares Fund, who helped serve as sort of like a watchdog for one of the, one of the national labs that work on nuclear weapons, said this in a conversation to me. Uh, this person said that, we need to take seriously the possibility that they may try to establish um, a reason to conduct a nuclear weapons test. And we didn't know what the reason for that could be. It could be uh, maybe they claim they have a new weapon and it has to be tested. I, I, I didn't consider the possibility that they would try to do it as some sort of degree of leverage over other countries, uh, but that's what their rationale is now. Uh, but this is a thing that we have been worried about for a couple of years. Frankly, I thought that if the administration attempted to do it, it probably would be in a second term. You know, if they got reelected, I thought it would be a thing they they do to try to push the envelope. I'm a little shocked myself that they're bringing it up now. But yes, they absolutely could do it. Um, there have been attempts in Congress to pull funding for it. Um, 
if for the next fiscal year. But who knows? I mean, this administration is wily. They've shown that their ability to move money around, to find ways to do things if they want to. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people are really worried about, that uh, they may try to have a test before the end of the year. Even if Trump, for instance, is voted out of office, I mean, there's going to be two months uh, in which he's still in office and can do lots of destructive things if he has that desire. And one of them potentially could be a nuclear test. I, I hope that remains unlikely, but it is absolutely a possibility. And if they, if they did it, um, we would really be entering um, another stage of the regression on arms control that we've seen under this administration. And, and the world would be a more dangerous place for it. On that uplifting note, <laughs> John, uh, thank you for, uh, again, for coming on the program. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll link to Plowshares. I'm uh, always, uh, you know, sort of so appreciative of the work you guys do. And, and I think more people should uh, be aware of it. Um, is there anything, I mean, is there anything you wanted to, to plug, any pieces coming out, any kind of work that's, that's happening there that you wanted people to, to know about? No, I would just uh, encourage everyone to, to check us out and, and to check out really perhaps more importantly than us, the people that we fund, uh, a lot of grassroots organizations, expert organizations, people at think tanks, all sorts of different folks who are working to uh, keep the world safe from nuclear weapons and, and hopefully restart the trajectory towards disarmament. Uh, those are people that deserve our support. And uh, I would just encourage everyone to, to check them out. John Carl Baker, thank you uh, for being on the show. And um, hopefully uh, this won't happen, but if there is a nuclear test uh, in the next few months, I will uh, definitely need to have you back to talk about that. Uh, uh, or, you know, if we still have, if there's still a society left at that point, who knows? I will be happy to join from my secure underground bunker. <laughs> thank you, John. You're welcome. Again, I want to thank John Carl Baker of the Plowshares Fund for coming on the program. Um, I think the, the the question of nuclear modernization and how it ties into the way that uh, the United States is approaching arms control, especially under this administration, uh, is a, a tremendously important one, not be, just because of its sort of ramifications for uh, global stability, but also domestically because of the sheer price tag. Uh, you heard John say, you know, $1.7 trillion uh, is what they're talking about spending on, on modernizing uh, a set of weapons, I think some of which, you know, some aspects of which do need to be modernized for command and control, for safety, to, you know, kind of try to minimize the potential for uh, some horrible mistake or, or something like that. Um, but in many other ways, like the, you know, the new kind of edgy, uh, technology, the, uh, you know, even the, the, some of the old technology, the concept of, uh, still keeping a, an arsenal of ground-based, uh, ICBMs is, is extremely dubious. Um, and it seems like at least some part of that whopping, whopping amount of money, uh, could be better spent, uh, on something else, anything else, many other things. I want to make one more plug uh, before we end this. I know I, I plugged the Discontents newsletter at the beginning of this episode. Uh, there's another project that Foreign Exchanges is involved in uh, as a, a partner or part of the network uh, called Opt Out, which is an effort to create 
Uh, it's an independent nonprofit effort to create a news app uh, for your phone or your tablet, uh, you know, whatever you, you like to use, uh, that brings together a lot of independent media outlets on the left. Uh, I know Jacobin is involved in this. Africa is a country, which is a, a site that I read regularly and uh, sometimes use in in the in our newsletters. Uh, Means TV. Uh, there's there's a number of them. There's too many for me to list here. Uh, it's being put together by Alex Koch and Walker Bragman, who are uh, you know both active uh, in the kind of journalist community, the left wing independent journalist community. Um, and they've got a Substack. It's mostly to keep people kind of updated and to give people an opportunity to support uh, their effort financially if you choose to do that. Um, and you can read more about what they're doing and and what they're what the the app. You can see what the app is going to look like uh, at their Substack, which is optout.substack.com. Uh, I would urge you to to check that out. Uh, they also have a website, optoutnews.org, all one word, optout, O-P-T-O-U-T-N-E-W-S dot org, uh, where you can, again, kind of see the uh, what the, the app is going to look like and get some updates on what's happening and see all the partner uh, organizations that are involved, including foreign exchanges, uh, and uh, sign up to be alerted, you know, when, when the app is ready to go out and that sort of thing. There's still, it's still in development. So, uh, uh, I'm excited about that. I hope that people will, uh, will, uh, you know, look into this and, and use it and, uh, and that it becomes a big deal, not just because, uh, I'm on it. There's a lot of, uh, outlets, including many of the, the same podcasts and newsletters that are involved in the discontents project, uh, that are involved in this effort. And I think it, it promises to be something, uh, you know, really, helpful for people to kind of, uh, you know, get, uh, orient their, their news reading. One of the problems with the decline of big media is that there's all these new outlets and there's just like this plethora of places, uh, where you have to go if you want to kind of, kind of read interesting things and interesting perspectives. It's, it's hard, uh, with a media landscape that's increasingly kind of just a few main large corporate outlets that are very tightly uh, sort of messaged and controlled in that sense uh, versus this kind of sea of newsletters and blogs and podcasts and it's hard to keep track of everything and so I think efforts like discontents and opt-out are very welcome at this point to, to help people kind of uh, keep track of all of those different voices uh, and have a place to go where they they're all collected uh, together and you can kind of uh, kind of digest things uh, more easily. I use uh, Feedly and, and RSS, but that's a dying technology, it seems like. Uh, and it's it's increasingly hard to, to rely on that. So hopefully these efforts will take off. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, optimistic that they will, but uh, I guess time will tell. But it, you should check them out definitely and help them to take off. So I, I hope you'll do that. Uh, on that note, uh, I'll wrap up here. Sorry for that extended spiel and all the plugs, uh, but uh, these are important things that I, I wanted people to know about. So I will, I will end it here. Uh, as always, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.